How can modern Christians be expected to read the Bible when we hardly read anything at all? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin here with Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell. Today, we're going to be exploring kind of a bigger picture sort of topic and one that's close to our heart as an organization. The Institute for Bible Reading started this work six and a half years ago so that we could focus on both the quantity and quality of Bible reading among those who claim claim the Christian faith. We knew the research that said that Bible reading was declining within the church, especially among younger people. So when we set out, the question was already in front of us. Is it actually realistic to expect people to re-engage deeply with the Bible? Not only were the trend lines down, there were also some pretty stubborn cultural realities standing in the way. Yeah, these days, reading in general, of course, is not very popular. Rather than reading books, it's much more common to see people hunched over their phones, scrolling social media or watching YouTube. And on top of that, there are some very specific common criticisms that have turned many folks away from the Bible. It's old and irrelevant. It's very hard to read. It's violent. It's against women. It's pro-slavery and so forth. You've probably heard them. In addition, it seems pretty clear that a lot of people aren't sure exactly how to get meaning from the Bible in a way that's actually helpful to their lives. So the net result is that it's a very challenging time for the Bible. Now, there are various possible approaches to try and help the church recommit to knowing and living the scriptures well, and we've been working hard on some of them for years now. Not least is getting a readable Bible into people's hands instead of something that looks like a reference book. You've heard us on that. But that's not really what we want to talk about today. Instead, we basically want to tell you a story. We think this story is both inspiring and revealing about what is possible for serious believers, even in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds stacked against reading. Yeah, thank you, Glenn. Yeah, Uh, this is a fascinating story, and it really is the story, kind of the evolution of what we might call the first people of the book, who were the Jews. And so, you know, the Torah, you know, had been birthed. Um, the prophets and their secretaries had been diligently producing the prophetic books. But these early scriptures had been largely ignored by the nation. But after the raising and you know the massacre of Jerusalem, 70 years of exile in Babylon, um, this once stunningly stubborn nation returns to their homeland. And they are painfully aware that their devastation you know, was due to their stubborn refusal to live up to their end of the covenant that had been laid out in the Torah and by the prophets. And so in this humbled state, an amazing thing happens. Um, kind of the age of scripture um, in terms of participation and people taking it seriously was birthed. And um, this, this new birth, if you will, these good intentions were reinforced by whole new structures and practices. So after uh, the exile to Babylon, the people return and they create a a new uh, cultural uh, phenomenon, if you will, 
It's the synagogues. And so the synagogues are born and they're established. And then there's a, a new role born into the Jewish communities, the rabbi or the teacher. It was also during this period that Israel developed some standard reading schedules for the public reading of scriptures. And these new structures and these new practices and these new positions, they took hold. And as we you know, turn to the New Testament, we see that both Jesus and the Gospel of Luke and Paul and the book of Acts, they too are participating in synagogue services, which involved, again, the regular reading of scriptures of the law and, uh, and the prophets. And so this era um, of engagement in scriptures was deeply woven into the fabric of their religion at that point in time. There was no such thing as, oh, so you've you know, become a follower of the one true God. Um, it would really be nifty if you'd commit yourself to the synagogue and the scriptures as well. That just wasn't an option. So you fast forward 200 years. Now, the Christian movement um, has been born directly out of Judaism. Jesus is a practicing Jew. The first disciples are practicing Jews. And Jesus and his followers saw themselves as carrying forward this very strong story told in the ancient Hebrew scriptures. And they had the same deep commitment to the scriptures as all the devout Jews did. And Jesus was honored by his followers as the Messiah, the first Christian simply identified as Messiah-believing Jews who are still part of the Jewish community. So it was natural for those early Jewish Christians to attend synagogue, to worship in the temple in Jerusalem, and it was also completely natural and expected that they would have the same devotion to the scriptures as the word of the Lord, the scriptures to be read, known, and lived. And so those new structures and practices took hold and uh, moved into the uh, early stages of Christendom. Yeah, and I think so far so good, right, as far as this whole kind of narrative goes. But I think the topic that we want to dive into today is about what exactly happens when a sort of Jewish birth, Jewish looking text based religion moves out into the rest of the Roman Empire. So what happens when pagan Gentiles who are not a part of this culture at all, who don't participate in any of this stuff, pledge their allegiance to a Jewish Messiah? So like basically, does serious Bible reading remain part of the program? Is that like uh, a requisite part of of joining this movement? And the answer is yes. So, so the story that happened of how that happened is is pretty incredible, and um, it it comes largely from a book by Larry Hurtado called "Destroyer of the Gods: Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World." So, one of the chapters in that book is called "A Bookish Religion." And it talks about how the first Christians stood out as compared to other religious movements around the ancient Mediterranean. Okay, so here's the deal. Religion in the sense of the worship of the gods was a standard feature of ancient Near Eastern cultures. This worship was simply expected, especially since there was such a strong connection in everyone's eyes between religion and politics in that world. Honoring or not honoring the gods was seen as having a direct relationship to the issue of whether your nation's gods would bless you with crops and wealth, would fight for you in your next battle, 
So there was significant public pressure for everyone to offer sacrifices to keep the gods happy. So Christianity bursts onto the scene in the first century, but doesn't look anything like these other religions. It appeared first as a sect of Judaism, which had been around for a while in the Roman Empire, but Judaism was not aggressively evangelistic. The Christians, on the other hand, had been told by their Lord to announce to the nations the victory of King Jesus and the importance of all peoples giving their faith and allegiance to him. When Gentile people begin to respond, they are immediately initiated into a very different kind of religion than they're used to in any other part of their world. Your average pagan would know all about sacrificing animals to the gods. Judaism itself had this as a part of its practice, but Christians did not. They believed that with the death of Jesus, the time of sacrifices had come to a close. Instead, they were calling people to belief in a single God, the one creator and sustainer of the entire world, and to a new kind of life. All of this involved learning the story of this one true God and then living in such a way as to honor him. Yeah, that's good, Glenn. And of course, this is where the Bible comes in. This is what, you know, Hurtado is talking about when he said in the first and second century, um, Christianity was established as a bookish religion. And so the story of God, how the world came into being, all of that was contained in the ancient Jewish scriptures. And those scriptures were carried over into Christianity. It wasn't like there was this line of demarcation. You had Judaism and then Christianity on the other side. Jesus, you know, was born into this ongoing story. And indeed, the Christ followers claimed he was the fulfillment of that early story. And so uh, a knowledge of God through this written story provided insight into the kind of lives the creator wanted his people to be. And so these early Christians took unprecedented steps to ensure that all of these new Christian communities that are popping up around the empire, that they're up to speed on the story. Uh, they need to access the scriptures and, and also the teachings and the group discussions that would help everybody, you know, understand them. And so this, there was an all-out effort, as we're going to see, to make sure that that happened. In, in addition to this, you know, the, the body of Scripture was growing. On top of the Hebrew Scriptures, there were new Christian writings, uh, the stories that we call the Gospels about the life and work of Jesus. There were then a number of letters that had been established from early Christian leaders, the apostles. These two were incorporated into the writings that quickly spread around the churches, and they were read and they were taught to everybody. And so all of this material, the old material and the new material, were considered absolutely essential. And the expectation in the first and second century was that familiarity with these scriptures and participating in, in the body to learn these scriptures and, you know, all necessary measures were taken you know, to make sure that that happened. And I think the big deal with all of this, I mean, it's a big deal in its own right, probably. But <laughs> on top of that, it's just like wildly countercultural at that time, I would say. 
So these these pagans turned Christians had like no experience with a book or text based religion like this. But it was kind of a non-negotiable, right? The the early Christians were emphatic that you had to be immersed in the scriptures. And we have, you know, early um, records from people like the second century Christian leader, uh, Justin Martyr. And he talks about how the the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets, which is, of course, the gospels and the works of the First Testament, were regularly read and discussed whenever the believers got together. So they kind of maintained that synagogue model, right? Where when you gather, the scriptures come out, they're read aloud, they're discussed. And so, so not only did the Jewish believers have to get the Gentiles caught up on the story, they had to in the first place, get them used to a text-based religion. So there's kind of multiple layers of commitment here, not only to um, have these practices where you're, where you're reading scripture out loud, but um, to really get them immersed at a, at a heart and mind level to the story that they're, they're joining into. Yeah. So it's already remarkable, but now start adding even more cultural information, right? Right. So on top of that, the vast majority of those Christians would have been illiterate, matching the percentages of the Roman Empire at large. It's estimated that 90 to 95 percent of the population was probably illiterate at that time. So in this culture, only the elites and some of their specially trained staff could read and write. But the Christian house churches only needed one person in each group who could read the scriptures out loud. And they found that person. They did that. Everyone else learned by listening and by the discussion or teaching that followed. We have to remember that this was an oral culture and people were accustomed to this, both oral presentation and listening, followed by good recall, were well-developed skills in this world. So that came right into play in, in the new Christian churches. Plus, it's not like there were enough copies to go around, even if everyone had been able to read. Reading material was rare and expensive. Everything was handwritten and then hand copied, a time consuming process. And it wasn't easy to find writing material, either parchment, which was made from animal skins, or papyrus, made from the plant found in the Nile Valley. Both of these were rare and hard to get. It was challenging enough just to get material for each new community to have a copy of these scriptures. Um, you know, in the, the, the movements expanding rapidly, there was no way everybody was going to get a copy, but they worked very hard to overcome these obstacles so that each new church would get the new material as quickly as possible. I mean, so everything that we're describing here, guys, is reinforcing this idea that Christianity was unique in that it was a bookish, you know, religion. And these early communities of faith, they found the writing materials and they, they used it like no other religion ever had. I mean, the other religions, uh, they had special writings for priests and the other cult leaders, but not anything that was intended for, for all of the people. And so as this commitment grew and the movement itself grew uh, and spread, it, it did become a bookish you know, religion. And, you know, it would be, it would be fun to have been able to go back to that time and sit in on meetings where 
leaders gathered together and talked about what their responsibilities were and what they wanted to accomplish in the growth of this this new movement. But we we get some clues about that, you know, in some of the texts of the New Testament and how they were very strategic in in writing and sharing materials. So you probably remember that, you know, Paul writes to the Colossians um, after this letter has been read to you, see that it's also read in the Church of Laodiceans and that you in turn um, read the letter from the Laodicean uh, uh, community. So churches apparently developed practices of copying and then sharing whatever materials they had received, and particularly the writings that came to be regarded as apostolic and sacred. And there's, there's even some evidence that there were certain major cities like Rome and Antioch, Caesarea, and Alexandria that came to function as regional publishing centers that were copying and, and distributing the scriptures. So I, I don't think it's over the top to say that um, the early church in the first and second century were pioneers in the, the publishing industry, if you will. and that publishing industry maybe even looked a little healthier than than our publishing industry today well you better stop right there yeah i'm going to okay no it's really true there were cultural innovations that went along with this commitment to everybody in the movement had to know the scriptures and be familiar with the story so that commitment was over the top and it led to cultural innovations Um, for example no other religion had ever used letter writing as a means of educating and forming others who were in a different location. That was not a thing in any ancient religion. But this became the go-to method in the Jesus movement. Paul and the apostles wrote early, and they wrote often to their congregations and to other young leaders. We don't even have all their letters. For instance, the two letters to the Corinthians that we have mention two others that are unknown to us. So if you keep track of how those are referenced, what we actually have in our Bibles is Second and Fourth Corinthians. I think that's kind of crazy. Like um, there was correspondence going back and forth, and we have a bit of that correspondence. Yeah. And it just tells you the place of letter writing that it had in the early Christian movement as a way for leaders to talk to congregations. Then, in addition to those materials that came to be part of the Bible, there were hundreds of other early Christian writings. The commitment level here to texts and to knowing texts was high. The length of these letters was another remarkable thing. I mean, this is, this is a new thing they're doing. We have over 14,000 examples of letters from the Greco-Roman area, you know, I mean, just in general. The average length of them is 87 words, and they hardly ever exceed 200 words. Paul's shortest letter, Philemon, is 395 letters. The letter to the Romans is over 7,000 words. I think it's a length which would have stunned first century people. They're like, what, what is this? We've never <laughs> seen or heard anything like this. The Christian content level was significant. And it wasn't just for the leaders. It was for everyone, publicly read, you know, discussed, taught. Um, and it's just flat out commitment to this learning. Yeah, it's wild thinking 
you know, I, I consider, you know, 87 to 200 words. What is that? Like your average email, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Pinging back and forth between people just settling whatever it was, some commerce dispute or something to Romans, like, holy cow, that's, that's right. Jump, you know? Yes. Yeah. So, so, you know, getting a little bit more technical, perhaps, uh, there, there's some more innovations, including the use of markings within the text that would help the public readers to deliver the content better. You know, if you've ever spoken publicly, maybe you have some notes alongside your notes to Mm. help you kind of emphasize certain parts or, Mm. you know, just make sure you orate well. So in these early scriptures, we see breathing marks. We see some pretty elementary punctuation, better better spacing, uh, larger letters. And, um, you know, again, they they all just contribute to a smoother public reading, but they also take more space if you're going to do that. And don't forget that papyrus was expensive in that time, but they considered it worth taking up the extra space because um, it all aided in better absorption of of what was being read aloud. Mm. Then, of course, in a culture where all serious writing was done on scroll formats, uh, the Christians also led the development of the codex form, which most of us today would recognize as more of a book format with a, a front and back cover and the pages in between. Uh, the codex would lat codex would last longer. It would hold more material. The covers sort of formed a boundary to mark what was officially included in the writings. And then later, church leaders developed lectionaries, which are collections of texts taken from the Bible and then designated to be read on Sundays throughout the year. And then lectors were ordained to official church office as public readers of Scripture which signifies how important that role was within within the body of believers. So all wait, wait, things, wait, 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 that Alex, that's crazy. You're, I mean, people who publicly read the scripture were ordained to church office, right? Just because they were public readers of scripture. Yeah. That, crazy. That's pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, that just says, look, this is a really important function in mm-hmm. the church. So, you know, somebody needs to preach, somebody needs to, you know, handle the the communion the and the, and the lord's supper and mm-hmm. and somebody needs to read scripture and those are all church offices yeah yeah wow. there's i don't know if we've mentioned it on this podcast before i know there's a book by max mclean who's done some audio mm. bibles in the past all about kind of the importance of training people in your church to read the scriptures well and then how to mm. do that how to prepare to read and and um how to deliver well. And it's just such a forgotten piece. Yes. It feels like yes. we've got projector screens and all you have to do is kind of do <laughs> a decent job of, of reading it out loud. But really most people are reading the screen anyway. It's just such a far cry from, yeah, yeah, you know, what it used to be. So, um, so of course, you know, all of this from the length and the nature of the writing itself, the copying, the dissemination to all the different churches, um, to the regular and the expected use of the writings in Christian gatherings. Like all of this is just a crazy level of commitment for our time, let alone for their time um, to, to disseminating and and using uh, using the scriptures in their public gatherings and really becoming immersed in that story. Yeah. So we're going to take a, a huge leap from 
the first and second century, where I think we've made the case pretty strongly that this really was a bookish religion, not just in word, but in deed, that they knocked them out to to make this happen. And so now, you know, here we are in our age. And the question is, uh, can we boast the same? And I think the obvious answer is no. Uh, in, in no honest, in, in, in integrity, integrity way could we claim to be people of the book and people whose uh, religion is a bookish religion. In most of our churches, there's typically a small number of people who would be uh, serious about their Bible study. In fact, some of the newest research um, says that there are really very few people actually reading the Bible outside of a church service. And even fewer of those people are experiencing the Bible in any kind of communal setting. And in many cases, a sermon is a, a, a brief Bible passage, and it doesn't get any, any further than that. And, and I think in many cases, a lot of preaching today is really could be described as, as coaching on you know, how to be a better you. Hmm. With a, with a few Bible verses sprinkled in for good measure. And so the result is that significant knowledge of the Bible is not considered by many to be essential to the Christian life today. You can read books on discipleship, and there's precious little there about the scriptures being central. And so if you have, have been listening to the Bible Reset podcast, uh, thank you. And you know that we have tried to advocate for a more in-depth approach. Um, we believe that reading the Bible should precede studying the Bible. You know that our outline for stellar Bible engagement includes starting with a Bible that is formatted for reading, that shows the books for the literature that they are, uh, that we read whole literary units, whether they be books or stories or songs or letters. And in all of their contexts, their cultural context, their historical context, their literary context, we've talked at length how important it is to know the overall storyline and how this narrative skillfully moves towards Jesus at the center of the story. And then understanding that we're reading the Bible as a living drama in which Um, God's desire is that we find ourselves and our places within it. And so the story continues today. God is inviting us into it. So this is what deep Bible engagement looks like. This is what a modern version of being a bookish religion would look like. And of course, of course, you know, helping churches to rediscover this kind of Bible encounter. It's a long-term project. Um, I think we could say it's a never ending effort. It needs constant attention and care. And there's always going to be the need um, to keep these basics in front of people. And, you know, we want to rekindle that effort. We want to mirror the first and second century churches. Our vision is that in our day and age, we could honestly claim that we again have become a bookish religion. Yeah. Yeah. That's good, Paul. So, you know, we've talked about how. It was in the early church. We've talked a little bit about how things are now and what our vision is to to kind of recover a bit of what the early church, early church's commitment was. Um, 
it feels like there's a long way to go. So do you, do you guys feel like a recovery is even possible at this point? So, you know, it can be very discouraging, actually, when when the trends keep going down, you know, especially for younger people. But if you have a longer term perspective, I think there is always hope. Change is difficult. It would be difficult for the church. But if you look at the history of the church, it shows that big transformation really can happen. As we just heard, the early Christians stood out from their surrounding culture in regards to this commitment to knowing their own religious text. No one else did what they were doing. We believe the church today could match that spirit and that determination. So here's a few things that we think can be done right now in our moment, in our story, to make that happen. First, I do think it's really important to have a clear understanding that we do have a choice. Some folks these days sound fatalistic when they talk about the decline of Bible reading in the church. They seem to think that it's just impossible to do anything about this. The cultural dynamics are simply too powerful, they say. But the stunning example of the effort and commitment of those new Christians around the Roman Empire should dispel that fatalism. Who thought what they did would have been possible? And yet it happened. They just flat out went against the grain of all the cultural trends of their world, and they succeeded. We could do what they did. But what does it mean to work for long-term goals? I think we have to be, in our time, I think, realistic that this is a long-term, big kind of transformation. I think, I think Andy Crouch says this in his Making Culture book, that the bigger the transformation, the longer it takes to kind of bring it about. So. I think we have to be thinking um, a long term. I mean, we've been we've been working hard at this for a few years, but it's going to take a longer time to change these practices. So will those goals ever be reached? I love this. And it's from a it's from an Irish poet um, whose name I can never remember. But when asking questions like this, like what's going to happen in the long term? He says the answer is in a story and the story isn't over. Mm-hmm. And I love that. It's like mm-hmm. it, it has yet to be seen. And then finally, I'll just add another one. I think it's vital to get a reader's Bible. Um, get one yourself. Give one to somebody you know, because it really is a game changer. If we think people are going to need to be reading their Bibles, they have to have a Bible that's actually readable. Um, even better, I'd say have an immense, an immersed Bible experience with your whole church, Bible, community, life, right? That's the trio we're after. And it's an experience that most Christians have never had. I, you know, Alex, your question is, um, is a penetrating question. Is, is recovery possible? Uh, is recovery possible? Um in a, you know, a multimedia world that we live in, you know, where the screen always wins. And I remember decades ago or a decade ago, reading a headline that said, we now have more TVs than bathtubs. And this is a, a dirty shame. It was the, uh, was the article, <laughs> but, you know, think about it. I mean, think about the world that we live in. Think about, you know, uh, even, you know, several decades ago when people had three channels to watch. And now there's, you know, however many um, choices and, and uh, people are, are surfing the television and surfing the web. And there's all of these 
alternative stories that are out there. And so is there any hope that we can, you know, close Pandora's box, that we can get back to being this kind of uh, of a church? And um, I, along with Glenn, Glenn, I don't think it's going to be easy. I think it's going to be um, challenging, but we cannot afford to slide into a Bibleless um, Christianity. And, you know, the the first and second century churches, they are inspirational to us. I mean, people couldn't read. How do you become a bookish religion when people can't read? <laughs> right. And and so at least today, you know, I mean, I think we need to say that. Um, maybe people aren't reading and maybe they are just reading mostly soundbite, but they can read. That is a foundational basis on which to begin. Yeah. We are going to have to as as leaders help them shift their reading patterns and shift it to long form reading shift it back to the scriptures but you know we have this benefit <laughs> and um you know to your point glenn we we shouldn't be fatalists and so um i think you know this is a discussion that should be happening in in churches everywhere and every church leader needs to be asking how do we turn our community into a learning community? So, you know, finally, I would say that our, our churches, you know, are going to need to be very intentional about teaching and modeling um, this for people. What kind of book is the Bible and how do we read it well? And too often, um, we leaders, and we include ourselves in that, we, we take the Bible for granted. We, we assume that people know how to read it, uh, what to expect, how to relate it to our daily lives. But none of this is immediately obvious when you pick up a Bible. It, it is truly an ancient collection of books. It is, it is challenging. It is a cross-cultural experience. And then I would add this, in our churches. While we're doing this, while we're wrestling this with this, let's learn and let's start with younger people and introduce them to the real Bible, not the cherry picked verses from here and there, as is so often been the case in Sunday schools and other Bible materials. And we need to track with them. Yes, in age appropriate ways. We need to interact with them around sacred texts so that they grow up knowing what the Bible is and how to respond and um and to read to read it well so guys this this uh this podcast was not in any way meant to um demonize church leaders today heavens they're they're saddled with all kinds of difficulties right uh, not the least yeah. today learning how to operate you know when Many people seem content to simply a, a church, attend a church, you know, online here and there. But this is crucial. And so we've we've wanted to call that out. And I'll, I'll never forget um, being in a major, a major city and having a conversation one day with an elder who um, was serving at a church that is internationally famous and their pastor is internationally famous. And whenever you read, you know, articles on the top 10 preachers, you know, of our generation, this pastor's name is always at the top of the list. But we talked for several hours about this vision of a new form for the Bible. 
and these new practices for the Bible about not snacking and feasting and reading intentionally in community and teaching people and in churches actually saying, we're going to do this. We're going to organize our church around these principles and we are not going to fail. We're going to make this happen. And at the end of this conversation, she was very wistful and, um, and said to me, you know, in all honesty, listening to what you've described and, and being honest about it, I would have to say that our church is not a Bible engagement church. Mm. We, mm. We, we invite people to come and listen to our pastor. Mm. And so those are the challenges in front of us. And I think we faced them honestly today and they're real. And yet I think we're saying um, with the aid of the spirit, they're doable. Yeah. And I think it might be worth reiterating just for one second, the difference between a church that, um, that has a high priority on the Bible places, a high priority on the Bible and a church that models and shows people how to read it. Well, Mm -hmm. say that there's a number of churches out there that think the Bible is very important. Um, but they don't read it well. And they're usually the churches that are making news headlines for all the wrong reasons, I would say. Um, so it's not just putting a high priority on it. It's, it's embodying this whole, um, this whole list of things that we've gone over for, for stellar Bible engagement and, and implementing them in the church and, and doing it well. So it's, it's quality and quantity, I guess I would say. So, um, you know, I think, Christians talk about living counterculturally all the time in all sorts of different ways, but I'm not sure that the commitment to reading and specifically reading scripture usually gets included in that discussion. So so hopefully this is maybe um, a little bit challenging for some of our listeners, but hopefully it's a good challenge that that spurs you on to good things. So again, for our listeners, the book that inspired this episode is Destroyer of the Gods by Larry Hurtado, specifically the chapter called A Bookish Religion. And thank you, Alex. Hey, this, uh, we're, we're actually today wrapping up our, our 60th episode. And um, we wanted to share with you, uh, many of you who have been very faithful listeners uh, to our podcast, uh, that uh, IFBR is going through a, a period of transition. And some of you that follow us closely know that Alex is moving to a new venture and in the future will not be hosting uh, this show. And Alex, we want you to know how deeply we appreciate your work. Um, You have been the one that uh, has done a great deal of the, the formation of this, the technology behind it, but also uh, have added theological depth and a framework to what we've been talking about. And um, we're going to miss you. And, um, and so we're, we're sad in that way, but we're excited for your future. I will, I want to make another announcement though, that Alex does have a new book that's coming out um, next spring. And Alex, this is um, my official invitation to you uh, sometime next year uh, to come back and uh, not as the host, but as a guest, hopefully uh, for numerous weeks to unpack uh, your new book. Want to make a, tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's slated to come out sometime next fall. Um, I've got a, a book contract with Nav Press. And actually, just right before we started recording this, I had gotten some um, some edits and suggestions back from my editor that I was I was working on for a couple hours. So it's <laughs> it's in process and it's going forward. And it, it it's a book that really encapsulates a lot of the work that we've been doing as the Institute for Bible Reading over the over the years and um, a number of things that we've touched on on this podcast. And it's really a book for people who are in the church orbit, but have just struggled to connect with the Bible like they've hoped. And it's kind of a, a guide for those folks to, um, to really, yeah, get immersed in the scriptures and, and have it inform and, and shape their life the way that, that we've talked about on this podcast and the way that, that people have always hoped the, the Bible would play a role in their lives. So I would, I would certainly love to come back next year as a, as a guest and talk through some of the ideas in this book. And, you know, for, for my part, this last six and a half years as the Institute for Bible Reading and the last two years on this podcast have been just a joy for me. Like it's, mm. I, I think none of us really knew what would come of, mm. of this podcast, especially. And um, we couldn't have imagined the, the reception that it would get, I don't think, over, over the last couple of years. And I just saw that it's been heard. In over 170 countries, which is just wow. kind of mind blowing to me. Right? Nice. So it's it's been a joy for me to to produce this show with you guys. I've certainly learned a lot. I've had a lot of fun. Had a lot of fun interacting with our listeners. So I guess you know my one note here is is gratitude and mm. and looking forward to being on the other side of the mic. I guess <laughs> next year as a guest talking about about this book. If I could just add, I think, Alex, um, you have been masterful in so many ways and people don't even see, I mean, they hear you as the host, but they don't know all the things you're doing um, related to content, relating to getting this show produced, getting it out there, getting it promoted. I mean, there's a there's a million other things that happen and you've been heading this up. And so we just say thank you for a job so well done. Uh, it's been my pleasure. And, you know, you guys have been doing the legwork, I think a lot on, on the research and the preparation for the episodes and, and getting the content squared away. I like, uh, handling the nuts and bolts at times. Um, so it's been a really fun collaborative effort mm. I think. and, and we've gotten into a rhythm here and, and learned how to work well together. And it really feels like a, a maybe a bit of a science, but maybe much more of an art to, uh, mm-hmm. to put this thing together. Yeah. Amen. Part part of our transition, um, at least in this next year, also in, involves Glenn, who um, is IFBR's senior director of content. And Glenn uh, has been, in many ways, the heart and soul of our podcast. Uh, yep. He is a, a deep well, and he's going to be taking a much needed and a much deserved uh, sabbatical. Although it is going to be, uh, you know, he's not going to be sitting out on a, a beach somewhere. He's actually going to be doing <laughs> nope. some writing, which in many ways, uh, anything that Glenn writes is is part and parcel of what our organization is about. Bible engagement just oozes through his pores. But Glenn, tell us a little bit about this next year for you. Yeah, well, um, you guys have been a part of my painful journey, of course, um, the illness and death my wife 
And I just, I, I've learned a lot through that. And you guys were gracious with me through the whole thing. Um, one of the things I specifically learned was about a much deeper understanding of lament in the scriptures. I have to say, Rebecca Eklund has helped me more than anyone to understand that, both in conversation on our podcast and in her writing, which is profound on this. And I've come to see that lament in the Bible is not just about being sad. It's actually most often a form of protest. So I've been inspired um, by some writings that I found of my wife, kind of her prayer journals and other things. Um, to to write a book length kind of protest lament on her behalf, kind of tracing all the challenges that she faced in her life, um, including the tragic ending, and and I'm I'm working with David's Psalms of Laments and others from the Scriptures, and rewriting them, um, kind of on her behalf. So David usually wrote about his enemies and asking God why hasn't He shown up to help him. And so I've translated those enemies into the things that kind of were dismantling the, the life of my wife. And so I'm going to write this very interesting. It's kind of going to be a creative nonfiction book. It's not really a biography. It's going to include episodes from her life. And then my responses in protest psalms, her own prayers, which I found in her journals as she was going through all this. And I'm hoping that it turns into a book. So that's really my, I mean, I have other things I want to do as well, but that's going to be my first priority in the time that I take off over the coming year. Good. And Glenn, depending on where you are in the process, you know, um, this is a formal invitation to invite you back as well next year to sit on the other side of the microphone <laughs> and, uh, and to be a guest on the podcast while you're resting, while you're resting. Right. And while well, you're in while while you're taking that would be wonderful a, a thank you break. Yeah. so uh anyhow uh we, we you guys have been um a wonderful audience so many of you have um shared with us how the podcast has ministered to you and and we wanted to just be uh as honest with you as we can about the challenge of the transition especially um this year and we would appreciate your prayers as we uh, mm -hmm as we try to artfully and creatively um, reorganize, especially um, for, for the short term. So um, we're going to take a break from the podcast. We hope to return um, sometime next year and uh, stay tuned. And again, we appreciate your prayers. Yeah, absolutely. And so one more time, thank you, Paul and Glenn for, for these mm -hmm. last couple of years. It's been an amazing journey. I think we've, we've all gotten to, talk with guests on here that we never would have expected to be able to have conversations with. So thank you to all of our guests. And of course, again, thank you to all of our listeners who have tuned in, who've shared the show, who've rated it, reviewed it, all this stuff helped it grow to, to the level that it's at today. It's definitely not something that we could have anticipated, but, uh, but we're grateful. One last thank you for, for our producer, actually, Joel, Joel Limbowen is our producer extraordinaire who has produced every episode of the Bible Reset podcast. So if you're out there and you need help with a video or an audio project, go ahead and check out Joel's work at onalimproductions.com. I'll go ahead and also leave a link to that in the show notes. That's going to do it for this episode. 
Thanks so much for listening. God bless.